someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek, covering the week's latest cybersecurity news and what you need to know to protect your privacy, your cybersecurity, and that of your family and your business. Broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. You can find us online at the web at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Twitter at CybersecRadio, and my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash cybersecradio, or email us at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com. J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com. We do take your questions on what you want to hear, what you want to know about cybersecurity, how to protect your privacy, uh, and that of your children. So we'll get right into it. Again, a very busy week uh, going on uh, in terms of WannaCry, the global ransomware outbreak that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We'll have uh, Sean Waterman on from our digital partner, uh, CyberScoop. Uh, you can find them at cyberscoop.com here in the next segment. Uh, and we'll talk more about that and what you need to know and some of the aftermath of that. But uh, I wanted to uh, start the show uh, talking about something I've made uh, reference to a couple of times, but not really talked about in depth, and that's called business email compromise, right? Uh, it is a multi-billion dollar a year industry, criminal industry, that really gets tricked people uh, in businesses to uh, sending wire transfers to criminals, right? Uh, so there's recent stories out of Chicago uh, this past week uh, that I was reading up on uh, where businesses who have overseas uh, relationships with manufacturers, uh, uh, partners, whatever, uh, where they have to, where they routinely send money overseas anyway, just as a normal uh, part of their business. Um, what attackers will do will listen into their email, uh, pretend to be the CEO of the company, say, hey, I need you to wire this money out, and relying on uh, people being uh, generally helpful and wanting to, to do the right thing, especially when their boss calls. So they, they take action on these emails uh, that have slight differences uh, for the CEO. There might be missing a letter. The domain name might have a one-letter difference instead of .com, might be .org. Uh, they will listen into email saying, hey, this, this manufacturer is actually sending an invoice. They'll delete the message, send another one, just doctoring it up, changing the account details, hoping to redirect funds to them. And like I said, billions of dollars are being stolen just out of the American economy every year of simple trickery, right? There's nothing overly complicated. There's no hacking tools or NSA exploits, which we'll talk about a WannaCry. It's very simple email-based lures. They may get a username and password uh, for any number of compromised websites uh, to pretend to be the CEO or the accountant or the CFO or whoever. Uh, or they could just simply register a domain name that looks really close to uh, the partner or the business hoping to trick you, right? 
there's this great great program uh, out there uh, on security awareness called Stop Think Connect. Right, you can see it on Twitter at Stop Think Connect. I believe it's StopThinkConnect.org. The entire premise of this, if if you're really about to do something that's going to cost real money, wire money, uh, you know, sign a document, anything that's really sensitive or important, right? Take a minute to, to stop what you're doing, right? People want to just kind of get through things quickly. You know, pay attention to those subtle little details, right? Has a CEO ever emailed you before to, uh, to do a wire transfer? If not, what makes you think that he's going to do so now? Maybe pick up the phone and, and talk to them. Look for subtle typos or differences to see if, if people are trying to impersonate things. Uh, and this is all good advice personally, right, of just in your in your own email against impersonation and spoofing, because a lot of hacking and online crime uh, revolves around relatively simple deception that if you take a look, you will notice, hey, this doesn't look right. As an example of what we did in a previous show, uh, the Google Documents fish, right? You know, you get an email, purports to say, hey, somebody is sharing a document with you. You click on it. It looks like a Google login page. You give it your username and password, and then all of a sudden the criminal has access to your Gmail account and all your contacts. But if you looked at the two line, right, of that email, you would see something like 17 H's at mailinator.com. So obviously something that's not right. Always pay attention to those subtle details because uh, there's usually something you can see that'll tip somebody uh, that, that will tip you off that there's some deception, some chicanery being involved, right? And it really comes down to uh, the person in front of the keyboard looking at, at email. And this is especially true in business email compromise, right? If you're going to send a two million dollar wire transfer out for something, uh, sometimes it doesn't hurt if you have any concern about something, spoofing, whatever picking up the phone and making a phone call to verify the data. And then one last point, I really want to make sure that everybody understands about email. Email is an insecure and insecurable medium of communication. There is not a product out there that will make you safe with email. There is nothing I can, I can offer you. We can make it a little bit safer. We could teach you some of the tricks that criminals use. But at the end of the day, if it is a large dollar transaction, medical records, something sensitive, Email is not the right place for that communication. Use something else, you know, for, for messaging with, with, with friends or whatever. Use uh, the mobile app Signal, S-I-G-N-A-L, which is encrypted uh, messaging service. Uh, if you're exchanging data with a health provider or a bank, insist on some kind of secure email service. Uh, don't use, uh, you know, your Gmail or whatever you're using, right? Email is insecure, and if it's important, you really shouldn't be doing it in email. Another little bit of news happened the past week. Microsoft bought a cybersecurity firm, Hexadite, for $100 million to provide some automated uh, cybersecurity protection. So based on people attacking, doing whatever, uh, does some uh, machine learning to dynamically respond to, to threats. Uh, so some very interesting moves by Microsoft. But I, what the bigger trend is is that you think of Microsoft as, okay, you've got Hotmail and now Office 365, uh, the operating system, of course. They're really starting to bake in strong security into their products. They're really trying to do a, a, a proactive thing. Ten years ago, uh, my pro fellow professionals, we would bag on Microsoft for just being uh, the cause of a lot of security issues. And certainly there are vulnerabilities in Microsoft software, uh, but a lot of the moves are they're trying to bake things in, uh, including 
antivirus. Uh, Windows Defender is now built in, uh, at least in Windows 10, a couple other previous versions. Uh, not a replacement for AV, not yet anyway. But certainly they're making the, the move where it's all will be built into the operating system uh, to provide for security. So the thing you need to know, if you're a Microsoft Windows user, uh, what I encourage people to do is get on Windows 10. It is a very strong and secure operating system. There's still issues with it, but nothing that you're going to see with Windows 7 or XP or some of the issues you saw with WannaCry in the past week. Microsoft has really done a lot of good work to make that a hard target. So uh, as far as protecting yourself, take advantage of that free upgrade to Windows 10. Uh, uh, you'll really be doing a lot for the security of yourself and your family. Uh, which brings us to our last point of WannaCry. Just briefly, right, the last uh, week or so, a lot of discussion of who is behind it. Um, uh, an emerging theory out there that North Korea, uh, and there's some fingerprints that their attackers may be behind it. Uh, some of the language used was written by a native Chinese speaker. Uh, so there's a lot of theories out there uh, that you're going to see a lot of headlines. But the reality is the investigation is still ongoing. Uh, I know I'm in the middle of a lot of it. There's a lot of leads. Uh, but it could take weeks, months, maybe even longer to really get to a uh, strong attribution of, of defining who it is. Uh, but a lot of work is taking a place uh, across the industry uh, to figure this out. Now that we've, by and large, gotten past uh, at least the WannaCry epidemic uh, and, and patching and cleaning up uh, some of the machines that were infected. But I want you to stay tuned. We're going to talk about WannaCry a little more after the break of some of the fallout uh, of that. Next up, we'll have Sean Waterman on of Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, talking more about the fallout behind, behind WannaCry. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We'll be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And now, focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is one guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about WannaCry, the global, global ransomware epidemic that shut down the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. Uh, we're still investigating that. Uh, you know, there's uh, still uh, some suspicion North Korea might be behind it. Some other interesting uh, theories have been emerging the past couple of days, but we will track that uh, as the story develops. But one of the underpinnings of the WannaCry outbreak was the fact that it became a worm and had the impact it did because they used a stolen NSA uh, vulnerability uh, and an exploit to help it infect machines worldwide. And this has sparked debate about how our own intelligence community handles uh, discoveries of vulnerabilities in software. Uh, on one hand, they want to spy on terrorists and foreign adversaries. On the other hand, uh, those same vulnerabilities, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, can be used against us and our own consumers. Joining us to talk about this is Sean Waterman of CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. It covers a lot of cybersecurity news. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Sean. 
It's a pleasure, John. All right, let's get right into this. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about how the intelligence community handles exploits. Uh, what are you hearing in Washington uh, on these conversations? Well, so, as you know, um, earlier this week, uh, <clears throat> at Senators uh, Schatz uh, of Hawaii, Democrat of Hawaii, Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, uh, dropped a bill. Uh, there's also a companion bill in the House with bipartisan, similarly bipartisan support to um, formalize what's called the Vulnerability Equities Process, the VEP. This is the uh, policy process that the U.S. government uses when it discovers, uh, when its uh, agencies discover a software vulnerability and they have to decide whether to um, keep it secret and stealthily use it to spy on the nation's ad adversaries or to report it to the manufacturer so that it can be patched and... Um, uh, and, you know, all the customers of that company that use that product made safe from, from all hackers. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so, so the bill got dropped earlier this week. And then um, and I, uh, uh, I've got a story out today that uh, Rob Joyce, the White House cybersecurity coordinator, mm -hmm. formerly the head of uh, the NSA's elite hacking unit, the Office of Tailored Access Operations, was very concerned about the bill because he doesn't like the way the review yeah. board is put together. And uh, he says there's already a bias towards disclosure. No, I, I, and knowing some of the people pushing the vulnerabilities equity process, they, they, they certainly prefer disclosure. Um, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this debate, I mean, it's kind of opportunistic, but... Uh, the fact of the matter is, is, uh, you know, didn't the uh, NSA apparently let Microsoft know about this vulnerability in January or February so that there was a patch available before before WannaCry actually hit us a couple weeks ago? Uh, there was. And I mean, clearly, that was the right thing to do on the on the part of the NSA. And um, uh, I mean, you know, they might have done it earlier. They've known since last summer when the, well, this mysterious group, the Shadow Brokers, uh, first started uh, dumping these uh, NSA tools. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but they did let Microsoft know. And, you know, and in fact, there's an argument for saying that the people who are really at fault here are Microsoft because they could, I mean, Eternal Blue, as you know, John, is a really, really powerful exploit. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if Microsoft knew that it was in, that it was, at, that it was about to be, you know, put into the wild, put into the hands of anyone who can use a computer, basically, um, uh, they ought to have released the patches, which they eventually did release once the WannaCry outbreak started, right. the patches for the unsupported versions of their software that are still among the most widely used operating systems on the planet. So Windows XP being the classic example. So, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. You know, WannaCry was just the first of these uh, uh, big use of this exploit. There'll be more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know that. Oh, depend yeah. on it. And, and I mean, you know, frankly, it's... I mean, the background to this, John, as you know, is when the NSA sure. first set up shop more than 50 years ago, all the equipment that was used by adversaries to communicate mm -hmm. was, was specific, particular, proprietary. Now we're all on the same infrastructure. I mean, not everyone, but you know what I mean. But, so a vulnerability in that is a really serious issue. 
No, no, and that's certainly definitely part of the world we live in now is that everything's being built off the same commodity operating systems, whether it's uh, defense systems, banking, medical devices uh, often will have windows, right. uh, and they're very difficult to patch because of the huge regulatory burden uh, that none of us would necessarily dispute on medical devices considering, you know, they screw up and somebody dies, you know, but they're running on things that you just can't walk up and patch because they've got to be recertified and that's not that's not short or cheap. It reminded me of a very interesting bulletin from US CERT in January. It said disable SMB version one, which is a good technical measure, but we're all kind of scratching our heads about this. Why are you telling this now? And it seems in retrospect, huh. the NSA may have told DHS, we need you to send this bulletin in the hopes that somebody will do this. Um, and of course, American companies might listen to the U.S. computer emergency response team, but that doesn't mean other countries would either, and they got hit harder. Well, well indeed. And I mean, I think... Um you know, part of that seems down to geography uh, in the sense that this, you know, it spread as a worm. So it spread to systems that were mm-hmm. in contact with other systems. Uh, and part of that, uh, um, you know, as you say, the medical sector in the uh, in the UK was hit particularly hard. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of Windows XP there. And in fact, the National Health Service, until com- quite until I think late last year had a special contract with Microsoft, you know, one of these continuing support deals, but they stopped uh, doing it because it was too expensive. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, I mean, for the people who are running these uh, IT networks in hospitals and universities and, uh, I mean, I just don't envy the job they have at all, John. I, no. I, you know, but it must be uh, really feeling the stress right now. Yeah, it's not been a good couple of weeks for them. So uh, we're coming at the end of our segment here. Yeah. Uh, you know, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Sean Waterman of CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com. Check them out. They've got great cybersecurity stories uh, all day, every day. Uh, so certainly take a look at their stuff. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. This is your host, John Bambanak. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Previously, 
Uh, in the last segment, we had Sean Waterman on from CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our new digital partner. They cover a lot of great cybersecurity news um, in a relatively new outlet, uh, but you know, kind of like this show, right, with all the heightened interest of cybersecurity, uh, trying to create uh, and break down uh, these important issues in a way that's accessible to normal people. There's a lot of kind of security trade publications out there uh, and certainly the general media uh, that tries, but uh, it doesn't necessarily get the, uh, the best reporting out there. CyberScoop really does some great things, uh, you know, have really savvy reporters who understand this stuff, but really breaking it down for uh, individuals out there uh, to make it accessible to you guys to understand uh, not just what criminals are doing, uh, but some of these big issues. Uh, want we, of course, right now, lately, a lot of people are talking about WannaCry, uh, the National Security Agency and their exploits and how they should be handled. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of other great stories at CyberScoop. I'd encourage you to check out uh, at CyberScoop.com. Uh, you know, one of which, you know, is, is, is about Internet of Things. You, you hear a lot about this uh, in terms of security, uh, you know, of what are we going to do about this, uh, this growing trend of Internet-connected devices. Um, it, a lot of manufacturers are in a rush to take things that we use every day, refrigerators, toasters, uh, an Amazon Echo, uh, you name it, to make it Internet accessible so that it can uh, link to various things, have additional functionality. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had on Dragos Ryu, uh, had a great story about trying to get his uh, wife's treadmill uh, that was a connected device, uh, connected and, and, and a lot of difficulty of just moving a couple of rollers and a mat, uh, but insisted that it be on the Internet. But a lot of these devices uh, are not terribly secure, right? They're, they're manufacturers who are good at making treadmills or medical devices or refrigerators now all of a sudden are basically manufacturing computers attached to this stuff where there's no real security built in. We got a taste of how bad that could be with WannaCry, ironically enough, where there was a lot of devices out there that we never really think of as computers, but were running Windows and vulnerable to the same stuff that Windows is vulnerable to, but there's no keyboard, there's no mouse, there's no monitor, you can't walk up to it and install antivirus or patch it or whatever, uh, but creates a lot of issues. And we're in a rush of putting billions of these devices on the internet, maybe they're running Windows, maybe they're not. But nobody's spending a lot of time thinking about security of these devices or uh, what it means uh, for physical security. I was at uh, you know, a, a conference the last week talking to some of my uh, you know, fellow researchers and professionals uh, on the topic of uh, all of these uh, smart devices that are basically figuring out traffic on roads. Maybe you've used uh, you know, the maps function on your phone to see where traffic is to reroute your uh, path. Uh, many many of these uh, applications will also reroute to find you the fastest route home. And something that uh, a researcher did was basically use that system, put in a bunch of spoof data, say, you know what, there's a thousand cars on this road uh, and this path, so that basically everybody would see a huge traffic jam electronically. They would drive somewhere else. And he basically was able to drive free and clear because he was redirecting traffic around his path of travel. <laughs> 
right? Uh, something that nobody really ever thought of uh, when developing these systems. They think, hey, wouldn't it be great if people get a live feedback of where traffic is so they can take a faster uh, route home, and then somebody basically uses that to uh, manipulate traffic around him so he gets the fast route home and everybody else is taking side roads. So there's a lot of security concerns with Internet of Things. Uh, it's a wide variety of things. With WannaCry, we can see how disruptive it could be. Uh, but there have been attacks uh, in scale using these connected devices. Uh, the denial of service attack on Twitter around Christmas this year was because of hacked DVR players and webcams and the like. Uh, so certainly uh, a lot of things that you need to be aware of. Uh, advice for you if you're thinking about uh, interconnected devices is make sure you have them behind a router so they're not directly accessible to the internet. Uh, make sure it's supported by a company that provides you some updates. Uh, be wary of things you can access without any real authentication. There is a research project, one of my students did this past semester, of Bluetooth light bulbs. So basically you can use your phone to change the color of the light uh, of a smart light bulb. Uh, you can also change and have it blink at a certain frequency. And one of the things I asked him, he's showing me this, of basically he created an application to hack into a smart light bulb. As long as you're close enough to it, you can do it. Can you make this thing blink at a frequency that would cause somebody with epilepsy to have a seizure? Sure enough, he could, right? So if you're somebody prone to epilepsy, maybe you ought, uh, want to avoid smart light bulbs because, you know, that would be a way somebody could cause you physical harm. Uh, in this company, there's one guy basically selling it on Amazon. Nobody was really standing behind it. So certainly be weary of these smart devices, uh, how they're used, uh, what they're used for, are there updates, can you access it without any real authentication. You're listening to Cybersecurity Radio today with John Bambanek. Changing gears a little bit. Uh, another story uh, out today of attackers uh, reusing passwords or that uh, borrowing somebody's password is the same as breaking, uh, breaking into their account, right? Uh, so I'm sure many of you may share passwords with your spouse, with your kids, uh, you know, but I am sure also many of you use the same password for a lot of things. What attackers will often try to do, right, is if they can find your password to your Facebook account, it's a pretty safe bet that's the same password for your company email. There's a lot of dumps out there. You know, I'm sure everybody's heard about LinkedIn. Many of those accounts have been compromised. So, uh, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, obviously you're probably tied to another company. Uh, and then maybe the same password for LinkedIn as that. So attackers will try to uh, reuse those passwords to get into your account. So they never actually attack your work. They never actually attack your bank. They just guess, hey, uh, this person is probably using the same passwords. And it could be a password or a site that comp uh, that got compromised as a blog or fantasy football or uh, I don't know any any number of insignificant things, but attackers make the judgment that you're going to reuse the same password, right? And if they can find it any number of ways, uh, then they can get into more important things, right? They don't have to attack your bank. They just have to attack some blog you frequent and get the password out of there. So certainly, I want to encourage you to take a look at password managers, LastPass or 1Password, what these services do. You create a big master password, um, and then you can store long and strong passwords of 16, 20 characters. When you go to a website, it auto-fills it in for you. So if somebody steals a password for some fantasy football site, it's not the same password for your bank. It's not 
want the same password for your company email or your health insurance or whatever. We've, as security professionals, we always tell you, right, have long passwords that are unique for every site. But I've got hundreds of logins. There's no way I'm going to remember hundreds of passwords. But this provides a good tool for normal people to use so that I can have good password hygiene so that if these insecure sites that don't matter get hacked, right, it's a password that doesn't matter, that can't get them into anything else. You will greatly protect yourself, your finances, the security of your family, your children, and and your company uh, by looking at that stuff. Not not very expensive. Take a look into LastPass, one password, right? Because that is a big thing. People think of hacking and security as this high you know high tech uh, person sitting in a basement typing two hundred words a minute, but it's really you know attacking at the point of weakness, stealing passwords that are being reused elsewhere. So definitely keep that in mind. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Google, some things they're doing to undermine your privacy and what you need to know of how to protect yourself. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanak. your computer. Run antivirus. Give me a systems display. Protect your data. It's all about the information. Protect your privacy. Privacy is a great concern to my customers. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I'm your host, John Bambanek. So shifting gears a little bit, we've been talking about WannaCry, some of the latest news, uh, but certainly there's some interesting news that, that emerged this week, that Google has also been tracking your offline purchases uh, so that they can marry up your online pro- profile uh, with your offline data uh, and as a way to show value to advertisers. So joining us, we have Tom Kulik of Chef and Stone. Uh, he's a partner with that firm, uh, previously a computer engineer himself, went to law school, uh, gotten a awards as both. Uh, so uh, focuses a lot on technology law, cybersecurity, and privacy. So thank you for joining us today, Tom. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure being here. All right, let's break it down, uh, break it down for the listeners. Exactly what, uh, what is Google doing here? Well, you know, let's, let's establish the foundation. Uh, Google is almost all-knowing when it comes to the, your habits based upon your searches, what you're viewing online, and the services, the Google services that you may be using. What has happened this past Tuesday is they announced a partnership with credit card and debit card companies so that now Google has access to approximately 70% of the credit card and debit card uh, purchase data in the United States. So that's a lot of information. No, it's very scary, kind of Big Brother-esque, but, you know, I think one of the interesting things that people don't realize is, you know, uh, probably the first question many people have, uh, how is this legal? How are they authorized to do it? Well, if you read your 20, 30, 40-page, you know, 
end user license agreement of Google, you've given them permission to do it. If you read uh, the credit card agreement of your credit card company, you've allowed them to, you know, aggregate marketing data about you. You basically surrender your privacy in agreeing to these long agreements uh, that basically you check or sign and never actually look. You, you've already given them permission to do all of this, um, which I don't think uh, not enough people realize how much data they give away in, uh, in these contracts that they never read. Well said, John. That's exactly right. I mean, you have not only the terms of use for each of the different services you're using with Google, but there's also a privacy policy that Google actually does in many different ways. They have a privacy policy and then they have a privacy portal that tries to explain to the user how much information they're getting. And when you actually take the time to read through that, they'll probably scare you. They do see a lot of your information and they save a lot of it, including location-based data. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage all of your listeners to please, please read through Google's privacy policy. It's actually very well written. And if anything, go to the website privacy.google.com. That's their uh, more non-legalese way of explaining all the different things they're collecting, the data they have, what they're collecting on you, how they're storing it, mm -hmm. and how they're using it. And in fact, I would recommend they even take what's called the privacy checkup available through Google on that webpage so they can actually make determinations as to what will be in their profile and what will be shared with Google and what they can see and, and use. No, I think that's that's excellent, great advice, uh, and certainly, you know, again, uh, encourage everybody, right, to take ownership of your privacy. No one's going to protect your privacy except you. You've got to you've got to own it. Uh, if you care that mm -hmm. Google knows where you are, then you need to uh, take affirmative steps to to protect yourself, uh, and not just if you use Gmail or use Google for search, which almost everybody does, but even if you have Android phones, because Android uh, devices tend to be married up to uh, your Google account also, which uh, in a lot of ways, I think our phones have a lot more sensitive information than our, uh, than just our email or our contacts, because it's, you've got a GPS in your phone, if you don't turn it off, that's right, you know, everybody you talk to, uh, all of these miscellaneous apps, coincidentally that have That's their right. own privacy policy and maybe uh, leaking data or whatever. So, uh, you know, uh, certainly, like I said, keep in mind uh, of all of that stuff. I know for my phone, um, you know, I'm an iPhone user, but, you know, it's not like Apple doesn't collect this stuff either. Uh, but for uh, the GPS, I think the only time I ever turn on the GPS is when I'm ordering an Uber. Uh, and then turn it off as soon as I get in the car. I, I can't think of any other reason why anything uh, would ever need a, a location turned on on my phone. You're absolutely right, John. I'll recommend that to all of your users. I do that myself. I'd only turn on the location data in very few instances where I'm actually using it with a specific app that's very helpful to me, and I'm willing to give that up for that service. But then otherwise, it's off. And remember, we're talking about, it's so great you brought up mobile devices because they're collecting that device info. They're collecting details on how you use the service, your telephone log, your IP address, your location data. They're collecting that. And so you need to go in and, and, and go through their privacy manager, go through this, understand what they're taking, and limit what they can see. Take control, as you said. Take control of what information you share because I'm getting a lot of questions from everyone regarding what was announced by Google on Tuesday. And what I'm telling everybody is you can't stop with credit card and debit card information Google has access to. But what you can control is what they cross-reference that information to regarding yourself. And if you can take control of that, you can limit how that can be done. And that's the best that you can do right now. 
No, absolutely. I think that's certainly true, right? You have to take ownership of your privacy, figure out uh, what these companies are doing. Uh, Google is, is relatively transparent, right? You can go to privacy.google.com. You can see it all there. Um, you know, uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter's put something in there. Facebook is kind of notorious for always changing things. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, but all of these services to a degree uh, can do this, uh, and especially third-party applications that you may give permission uh, to your Facebook account or your Google account can take anything. And if you're never looking how it's right. used, well, you know, uh, you can't really claim privacy if you've already surrendered all uh, all rights to it in the first place. And that's something that everybody has to understand. And I know you've, you've, you've uh, told this to your listeners many times before. It's free is not really free. <laughs> yes. It's, it's really true. And, and one of the things that is really concerning to me, I, I mean, I do know what Google has stated. It is a, a quote unquote double blind system, meaning that Google is not seeing the personal information that the credit card and debit company debit card companies have, and those companies don't see the profiles and personal information that Google has. That's a good thing. But um, as we've discussed before, there was a study that happened on this with MIT where they examined uh, the credit card records of about 1.1 million people, and they drew upon a sea of data in an un unnamed uh, developed country, quote-unquote, and were able to figure out after cross-referencing a lot of information that they only needed about four pieces of information to unmask otherwise anonymous data, three if pricing was involved. So mm -hmm. this yeah. thought of, don't worry, it's anonymized data, is really a misnomer. If they really wanted to, they can do that. And I think that's what has many experts concerned. It's because Google, of all people or of all entities, has the wherewithal and the money to really do that. So everyone's saying, if you're doing this, Google, please be transparent. You've got to tread very, very carefully because with what you're doing, it's starting to get a little scary. Where they're using this big data, what's to stop them from a third-party relationship with an insurer, let's say, and giving all this information on your search histories, providing it to that insurer, and the insurer starts work working actuarial tables off of that. God forbid with the own insurance that you want to get from that insurer. So there's a lot of ways that people are concerned, and, and this is something that we definitely need to keep our eye on. No, definitely, and I think that's what, those are all really great points, kind of coming to the end of our uh, interview here. But want to thank you, uh, Tom Kulik of Chef and Stone, uh, cybersecurity and privacy lawyer from Texas. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, John. So some very great information there from Tom Kulik. Uh, Definitely check out privacy.google.com. Take charge of your privacy with Google. Uh, certainly do the same for Facebook and Twitter. We'll talk more about those services and the changes they've made recently uh, in future shows. But at the end of the day, if you're not taking charge of your privacy, no one else is going to do it for you. So take a look at what the data that's being collected. Uh, tamp it down. Uh, do what you feel you need to do to protect your privacy. That brings us to the end of the hour. Had a really great show talking about WannaCry, some of the fallout from that, uh, some great content from our digital partner, CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com. So definitely check them out. Uh, if you want to connect with us, come to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com at cybersecradio. And you can find me on Twitter at Bambenek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. So definitely reach out, be in touch. Tell us what you would like to hear, what's interested to you, uh, what's got you concerned about your privacy. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, we've been broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. This has been Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambenek. Stay tuned and hope to catch you next week.